Welcome to our podcast series from the Computer Science Artificial Intelligence Lab at MIT. I am Lori Glover, and I'm here today with Professor Andrew Lowe, who is the Charles and Susan Harris Professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management and the Director of the MIT Laboratory for Financial Engineering. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Good to be here. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your area of research and what some of your current projects are? Sure. Well, I work in the area that intersects finance and technology. That's one of the reasons why I'm affiliated with CSAIL. A lot of my work focuses on taking financial models and theories and applying them to data and various kinds of analytics. And uh, over the course of the last few years, I've been focusing on a few different areas that intersect CSAIL and Sloan. Uh, one is on applying methods of cryptography to financial regulation and information sharing. The second is applying machine learning techniques to understanding various kinds of patterns in financial data. And the third is developing models of human decision making and how artificial intelligence can actually be applied to natural intelligence in financial contexts. Wow, that's great. So with your expertise, can you talk a little bit more about what AI and machine learning may mean for financial services in the future? Well, the financial industry has really been transformed by technology. In fact, we have what I think of as a technology arms race going on right now in finance, where the banks and the financial technology companies are really in a race to provide better services to consumers. And so one of the things that I've been working on is trying to understand how that process works. How is it the case that technology can actually help us make better financial decisions? In order to understand that, we actually have to understand how people make decisions. And mm -hmm. so artificial intelligence is really a key part of that. You know, we really try to take apart decision making piece by piece and then put it back together again so that we understand how humans do it right, how they do it wrong, and how technology can help make the difference. Oh, that's great. So you talk about better services. What kind of services are being improved? A good example is deciding on how to invest your retirement assets. A simple decision like asset allocation between stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, real estate. That's really pretty complicated for the typical consumer, but once you develop an algorithm that can help people make those decisions, uh, the problems get a lot easier. And then we can think about things that we really enjoy thinking about as opposed to having to make up our portfolios once a day or once a quarter. Great. So. There have been a lot of articles about robo-advisors mm -hmm. employing AI. Is this a kind of a robo-advisor idea or is this something totally different? No, no, it's exactly related to that issue. Uh, we've been trying to understand how algorithms can actually help people make decisions more efficiently. And you know, one of my students said that instead of working on artificial intelligence, what we really are doing is working on artificial stupidity. And <laughs> I think that's a bit of an overstatement. Uh, I don't think people are being stupid, but they are being human. And so artificial humanity is really what I think we're trying to understand. Uh, we want to be able to encode in algorithms both the good decisions that people make, but also the bad decisions that they make, so we can understand how algorithms can actually prevent those bad decisions from happening. And in order to do that, we really have to get to the fundamentals of how people make those decisions and how we can use technology to support them in better ways. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, but along those lines, too, of new technologies that are being employed, another real popular topic with banking and finance is blockchain. Mm. What are your thoughts on that technology? Well, it's pretty clear right from the get-go that blockchain technology can, may play an incredibly important role in financial transactions because if you think about the typical process that a financial institution undergoes, the idea behind 
identifying and recording transactions in real time and being able to maintain a ledger that accurately represents the sequence of transactions is really critical. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's what a lot of banks spend billions of dollars every year on their IT infrastructure. It's to keep accurate records. Well, that's exactly what blockchain technology does, but it does it in a much more efficient and secure manner. And so that really is going to be the future of banking. And already, all of the major banks have invested in blockchain technology. So my guess is that within the next three to five years, we're going to see commercialized versions of that going on in every major financial institution. So the way I understand blockchain is it's distributed mm -hmm. over many machines. How, how does that work with banking? Do the, the banks distribute it across a lot of their servers? Or how does that work? Well, I think that's exactly what needs to be worked out. Banks typically are not good at sharing. They really mm -hmm. want to centralize all of that information. But the problem is that centralization creates single points of failure, and it also becomes very inefficient. So this notion of a distributed ledger is a really unique idea that could actually make banking more efficient. So I think that's the challenge, is how to take banking, which has been a very traditional, slow-moving, mm -hmm. highly regulated industry, and transform it into something that's going to be much more flexible, nimble, and uh, innovative. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Um, along the lines of blockchain and Bitcoin uh, is also this development of the cryptocurrency. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that? Well, that's a really interesting development that all of the financial regulators are watching very, very carefully. You know, we have a very interesting development in the financial world with regard to currency. It used to be the case thousands of years ago that the way we transacted in human society is through barter. In other words, if you wanted a pair of shoes and you happened to be a furniture maker, you would have to find somebody that was looking for furniture and was a shoemaker mm -hmm. in order to be able to get what you wanted using the currency that you had. But somewhere around 3,000 years ago, we invented this notion of currency, which is a medium of exchange that basically converts all various goods and services into a common denominator. Mm -hmm. And that was a really powerful idea. Initially, it was coin. So we either used bronze or later on gold to create these kinds of mediums of exchange. So once I have a coin, I can purchase any good or service. Mm -hmm. And that made the economic world much, much more efficient. Now, fast forward 3,000 years and imagine if you could do that electronically so that you can actually use an electronic medium of exchange. That would make things even more efficient. That's where cryptocurrencies come into play. The problem with cryptocurrencies is that they no longer have the same kind of control mechanisms that hard currencies do. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the U.S. Federal Reserve controls currencies here in this country and the U.S. Treasury is charged with the responsibility of managing currency, printing the dollar bills. Right. Imagine now if that was taken away from them and given to the people. That's both exciting and also scary, and that's why Bitcoin has been such an important experiment, and now there are probably over 150 cryptocurrencies out there. The real key is if we can actually marry the technology of cryptocurrencies with the security of the financial regulatory infrastructure, if you get both, then we're talking about a completely new era of economic analysis and transactions. That's really what we're moving towards. Oh, that's, that is really interesting. So just to like follow up on Bitcoin, the way I understand it too is its value has changed dramatically, huge swings. If you're able to establish some of the regulation, then cryptocurrency wouldn't have those wild swings. Exactly. That's part of the problem right now is that cryptocurrencies, all of them, even the most well-known, which is Bitcoin, 
has these incredible roller coaster rides in value. And imagine if the US dollar exactly. experienced that, right? <laughs> that would not be fun, no. <laughs> and it really wouldn't work well as a currency. Well, if we could take that technology, but allow a government organization like the US Central Bank, the Fed, to manage it, then you can get some really, really powerful results that come out of that. You can actually have much more efficient economic transactions while at the same time ensuring the stability of the value of that electronic currency. Exactly. Got it. So um, we've talked about a number of things, uh, bitcoins um, you know, and cryptocurrency and blockchain. Can you share your thoughts on any other developments that might shape finance and banking in the next five to ten years? Well, secure multi-party computation is a technology that is emerging. It's a very old idea that came out of the computer science industry, uh, as well as the computer science departments around the world. Uh, MIT happens to be a leader in that. We've got a number of people that were really at the foundations of that research. And now we're at a point where secure multi-party computation is really practical. So in a nutshell, the basic idea behind secure multi-party computation is a method for allowing people to share information while at the same time keeping other kinds of information private. So one example would be if all of us were sitting in a room and we wanted to know what the average salary was of the various people in that room, you can imagine that that's a pretty difficult thing to talk about. We don't usually compare salaries. But imagine if we could do so, if we can calculate the average salary without any one of us having to reveal our own individual salaries. Now that sounds like an impossibility. If you want to calculate the average, you need to know the individual components, right? Well, that's where secure and multi-party computation comes in. There is a method for encrypting the information that each of us has individually and keeping that private, mm -hmm. but combining the encrypted data and being able to calculate all sorts of statistics on that encrypted data, which will turn out to be the same as if you had the statistics of the unencrypted data. So that's the idea behind secure multi-party computation, to develop an encryption algorithm that allows you to calculate certain statistics as if you had the unencrypted data, but will not allow you to reverse engineer the data itself. Sounds like magic, yeah. but it actually works. It's been a proven technology for the, about 30 years, and over the course of the last five years, breakthroughs have actually made these kinds of algorithms practical to the point where we can now start implementing them using real data. Now, practical is one thing because a lot of the work that we've done here may have, you know, um, might be very, very slow or lag time. Does this have any of those issues? Well, it did in the past. So that's one of the breakthroughs that's occurred. It used to be the case that to use these particular methods would take days and days to run the encryption algorithms. But about five years ago, breakthroughs in academics came up with much more efficient algorithms. And some work being done here at CSAILE actually provides even faster improvements in these kinds of calculations. So as of today, these algorithms can be implemented in a matter of minutes as opposed to days. Oh, that's great. And that makes all the difference in the world. That's fantastic. So this is a lot looking into the future, which is great. One of the other questions I have is banks have been around for a really long time, similar to like manufacturing, and they have intricate legacy systems in place. What do you see is going to be the most impactful technologies affecting this issue? So you put your finger on probably the biggest issue in finance and technology, which is how to bridge the gap between what is and what will or what could be. Mm -hmm. So we've got some really exciting 
ideas about all sorts of new technologies. But the fact is the banking industry has been around for at least a century, probably longer, depending on how you count it. And the regulatory infrastructure is extraordinarily complex and important. We want to protect individuals from the kind of bad stuff that can go on in the banking industry and that we've seen over the course of the last few years. So we don't want to get rid of the technology, nor do we want to get rid of the regulation. We want to do both. And the question is how to bridge that gap. That's really where this notion of the bank of the future project comes in. What we want to build here at CSAIL is a kind of a playground, a sandbox, if you will, for all sorts of technology innovators, as well as banking industry professionals, a kind of a safe zone that can take some of these ideas and really work out the bugs before they're implemented in practice. And we're really excited about this because we see a number of opportunities to bridge that gap by taking traditional banking structures like the ATM mm -hmm. and using wireless technology and authentication methods that are currently not being used but should be to make those kinds of transactions seamless and secure. So the hope is that if we can build a kind of a sandbox for us to be able to take banking technology to the next generation, we'll actually be able to see some of these ideas put into practice much sooner. That's, that's a fantastic idea. So for financial executives, these all are areas that they should watch. What is the most impactful thing they can do as being you know, part of the sandbox? Or um, how, how, would, how would banking executives get involved or do something? I think that they should start working with CSAIL principal investigators and our students on various kinds of collaborative projects. For example, one project that we have involving banks is using machine learning algorithms for managing consumer credit risk. It's pretty clear that there's a tremendous amount of data and even now data providers are starting to use machine learning algorithms to identify patterns of good credits versus bad credits. We can do that on a much more efficient scale, especially if we combine data from banks and other financial institutions like insurance companies. Mm. That's one method. Another method for working with us is focusing on new technologies to do things that have already been done. So secure multi-party computation is an example where you can get multiple divisions of a bank collaborating on sharing information while at the same time protecting the privacy of the data yeah. and being able to manage system-wide risks that are currently not visible right now because people don't want to give up their proprietary information. A third area is to actually start applying some of these ideas of authentication and cryptography at the very level of the consumer. Imagine if consumers can encrypt all of their data and assure themselves that they're private while at the same time providing various kinds of institutions and counterparties with the information that they need. Yeah. Those technologies exist today, but they haven't been implemented in practice. So this kind of a future banking center could actually allow all of that to happen. That is a very interesting vision, and I think very exciting for, the, for this industry. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today, and that concludes our podcast. <laughs>